0: We'll just open uh, here with uh, Peter and Susan and Lucy, and they find themselves in the house of the Beavers. And uh, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver tell the children that they're going to take them to see King Aslan. And uh, here, here's what he says. It should be up there. Is is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who, the, he is, who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they are either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king. So I open with that because we're going to be talking about continuing in our series here on Jesus. Um, uh, as, and as we, as we talk every Sunday, we're always, we're always talking about Jesus because the Bible is a book that is cover to cover about Jesus. That's all you can really read about in the Bible is Jesus. Um, but in this series, we started out, as you, if you go way back to the beginning of the summer, we started out in the Old Testament. We started out in Genesis. And we were looking at the promises of God. And you remember, uh, right in the very beginning, in, in chapter three, God promises to Eve that she, there will be an offspring of Eve, a seed, who will come and uh, who will crush the head of the serpent even as he strikes at his heel, and then we looked at the uh events of Israel that pointed towards uh, the coming of the Messiah, and we looked at the law and we looked at the prophets, and all of that was in anticipation of Jesus. And we so we spent a few weeks in anticipation of Jesus. And then and then we spent several weeks mainly in the Gospels talking about the incarnation of Jesus. Why Jesus came? Why did he come in the flesh? Why did he come, uh, you know, to uh, suffer and to feel hungry and to be tired and to, you know, ultimately be persecuted and killed by his own creation? Why, why did Jesus come? And we talked about his incarnation and the things that he taught and the things that he said and the way that he spoke and what he did. And so we looked at uh, the incarnation of Jesus. And then now to finish up our series, because summer's running out, according to uh, our meteorologist over here we're, we're we're moving into fall now and so to conclude we're going to look at the revelation of Jesus and so we we've we've come from old testament to the gospels new testament now we're going to finish two or three weeks in revelation at the revelation of Jesus and uh in the book of revelation it's there that we literally see Jesus unveiled that it's with the curtain pulled back And through the visions that the angel gave to the Apostle John, we're allowed to to sort of pull back the fabric of this reality. And that's what the book of Revelation is about. It's It's the revealing, it's the pulling back of the things that are being hidden. And the things that we see and the things that we sense in the physical world we have to realize are just a shadow of what is really going on, and they're a veil. They, they obscure what is really taking place right now, not just in the future, but the things of this world obscure what is actually taking place. And what I mean is this, for instance, the shepherds, uh, in the case of Jesus, they saw only a peasant baby in a manger. But the angels could see, and the angels could sing to the glory of a king. And the crowds of Jews, they, as Jesus taught, they saw only a traveling rabbi, they saw a wise teacher who um, could feed them fish and bread and uh, who performed these miracles. But but Jesus showed the disciples that he was the bread of life come down from heaven. And and for another instance, the Romans could only see a religious and a political agitator who was expediently crucified, just like a thousand others had been crucified by the Roman Empire. But God saw the sacrifice required to cover the sins of the whole world. And Satan saw his own inevitable defeat. And so we see things in this world, but they are not the real things that are taking place. And so we even see each other. And we see bodies, and we see flesh and blood, and we see... Babies and older people and we see people in various stages of, of health. And we forget that each and every one of us is an eternal soul intended for fellowship with God of the universe. And so we, we see things with our eyes, but we don't really see what's going on. Right? And so that, that's the next couple of weeks because that's what the book of Revelation is for. We don't see properly because we're blinded by the world around us. And so in the book of Revelation, we have this opportunity to finally see, to really see the first verse of Revelation says this. It says, this is the revelation. and the word there is literally apocalypse. Okay, And apocalypse, it means different things to us now because of how it's used here. But apocalypse just means the unveiling, the revealing. This is the apocalypse. This is the re- revelation, the unveiling from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants which, that which must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant. And so God has tells Jesus what to tell John. And so Jesus sends an angel to give this revelation that is from God to him, to the angel, to John, and, and and what he's allowed to show John in these visions. And so John, in the book of Revelation, writes this revelation, this unveiling down for us to see, to let us know what he's shown. And so the book of Revelation can be a bit uh, confusing and a bit scary because, because I don't think we're fully equipped to see beyond this reality yet. We don't have our spiritual eyes fully yet, and we don't have our spiritual minds fully yet, and so revelation can be a little bit confusing. But God saves this final book of the Bible. He saves this final book of the Bible, the last chapter of his letter to us, for a glimpse of Jesus unveiled. And the glimpse, I am certain, in Revelation is to aid our comprehension of the perfection and the glory and the worthiness of Jesus for our worship. That's what Revelation is about. It's to unveil Jesus so that we get the full picture of just how worthy he is of our worship. And so we have to get the real picture of Jesus. It shows us as close as we are able in this world the true Jesus. It doesn't, Revelation, if, if you read through this book, this is a book that does not allow you to pick and choose the Jesus that we want, or to pick and choose the Jesus that we prefer, or the Jesus that fits into our culture or our worldview better. Revelation presents Jesus as the perfection of God's perfect justice and mercy and love. Revelation reveals to us, like no other book, I think, in its completeness, Jesus as the Lamb of God, but also the Lion of Judah. He's good, but he's not safe. And that's what you get in Revelation. Let me just pray before we look into Revelation chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there secretly while I'm praying. Father God, we thank you for this word this, that you have given to us, uh, the whole Bible, all the books. But Father, it's incredible that this final book that you reserved for the end this glimpse that you have given by your angel to the Apostle John is a picture into realities that right now we can only barely comprehend because they show Jesus in his fullness as the sacrifice and as the lion, as the victor. And Lord, we want to worship the whole Jesus, not just the parts we pick and choose that we think we like. We have to worship him for who he is and worship you for who you are. And so I pray that as we look into this just one chapter right here today that uh, our eyes would be open, that you would give us by your Holy Spirit uh, the same kind of or a type of the vision that you gave John and that we can see uh, what you would tell us, our minds and our hearts, that we are to worship in your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Revelation 5 uh it's such an amazing book. I'm sorry I have to jump all ahead to five already and then we're going to kind of jump through it. But Revelation five. And just to set the stage in Revelation four, John has a picture of a throne and on a throne is, uh, uh, God, uh, this amazing picture. It's the throne room of, of God and the elders are there and the four living creatures are around the throne. And that's, that's the scene in, in Revelation four where he begins. And then he continues in Revelation five. And wept, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And so this is the picture that we have from John in chapter 5. It is is a picture of that veil or that curtain being pulled back to reveal what is going on in the throne room of God. And, And what John sees is this. There's a throne. And there's a being on that throne that was difficult even for him to describe. In chapter 4 is where he tries to describe it. He says, uh, in chapter 4, he says, And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. And so this figure on the throne is this dazzling figure, this um, red and orange kind of fiery light figure, like a like a diamond with a rainbow of light around him. And John says elsewhere that the light of God on the throne is radiant, like a rare jewel. He can't he can't even really describe this being that's on the throne. It's just light and in in and in the hand of this being figuratively because god is spirit so we're talking figurative language here this is vision visionary language but but john in in the you know how you have a dream and you can't really understand but you know what it means and this is what's happening with john right so in the hand of this thing that is god that he can't describe in the hand of god on the throne there's a scroll and there's a scroll that's sealed with seven seals the number of perfection so there's this perfectly sealed scroll and it's unbreakable, and it's sealed with perfection, all the perfection of the law and all the due process and authority. There's, there's no mistaking the sealing of this scroll. And then no one could open the seals of this scroll, which causes John to weep. And he says twice, I wept and I wept. So whatever it is in the scroll here, it must be opened because John is weeping that it cannot be opened because no one is found worthy. And we know from chapter 4 as well that this throne is surrounded by the angels and the 24 elders and and the four beasts of the world. And and so there's no beast, there's no man, there's no angel that can open this scroll. And John is weeping at the consequences of this scroll remaining sealed. But then in verse 5, It says, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll. Okay, so so there's a lion here. There's a a lion as well in this throne room. There's a lion of the tribe of Judah. But then as we continue in verse 6, when John actually does look, because he's crying, and the elder says, look, the Lion of Judah has triumphed. When John actually does look, he says, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And so when John looks to find the lion, he sees a lamb. Right? It's like a vision. It's like a dream. So so, so there is a lion there. The elder said so. But there's a lamb there too. It's a, It's a... It's a lamb like lion, and it's a lion like lamb. And, and we have to take note that there's no contradiction in John here. right? He understands that the lion is the lamb, and the lamb is the lion. And that it's a lamb who appears to be slain, but it's clearly alive, because it's standing at the center of the throne. So we have this, this lamb that is, appears to be slain, but it's alive, and it's a, it's a lamb, but it's a lion, and it's a lion, but it's a lamb. And he's standing on the throne and he's bearing the seven horns of perfect authority and the seven eyes of perfect knowledge and omniscience. And and at the center of attention in in this picture that that the angel is giving to John, at the center of all this is the scroll. Right? That's the center of attention right now, and I don't want to linger too long on the scroll for the sake of time, but if we were to look at other times when God has revealed his plans to his prophets, you could look at Ezekiel 2, 8-10, to and you would find that God is showing Ezekiel a scroll with this unusual situation of being written on the front and the back. Uh, so it's a similar type of scroll, or we could look at Isaiah 29 where God tells Isaiah as he is giving him a vision of his perfect wrath and his perfect justice and his mercy upon his people, he, he tells Isaiah that that whole vision that he has just given his prophet is like the words sealed in a scroll that no man can open. So there's this picture that we have that, that God has shown this scroll before to Ezekiel and to Isaiah and that this scroll contains... Um, Uh, In Ezekiel, it says that the the, the scroll contains lament and mourning and woe. And so this is a scroll that that contains the the wrath or the justice or the perfect uh, consequences of God uh, against the wickedness that is done towards him. And at the same time, it is a picture of his uh, mercy and redemption. And so the scrolls that cannot be opened are the scrolls of God's judgment of his enemies and the redemption of his people. The, the scroll, you could say the scroll, is God's plan for the world, right? It's his plan for history. It's God's plan of what must take place. God has a plan for judgment and redemption, and it's a perfect plan. And without that plan, there would be no judgment for the evil of the world, and there would be no redemption or grace available to the world. And so without that plan, there is neither justice nor mercy, And so here is John, as he sees in this vision in Revelation, John knows that that is a terrible thing. If the scroll is not able to be opened, then the history and the future of mankind is not governed by God's plan. If wickedness and evil and sin is never going to be properly punished, then we live in a horribly unjust world. We live in a hell of a world, and we should be weeping like John if there's never going to be the justice of God if that scroll stays sealed. But at the same time, if there's no possible redemption by God's mercy for those that call out to him, then we should double our weeping because there's no mercy or grace or forgiveness or future inheritance. And so John says, I wept and I wept. John is weeping because on the one hand, there must be justice or else we live in a terribly evil, unjust world. There must be justice. And he weeps again because there also must be mercy or else there's no hope for us. And so John is sitting there weeping because this scroll remains sealed. But John doesn't need to keep weeping because there's a lion who will bring justice. And there's a lamb that will bring mercy. There has to be both, the lion and the lamb. And so you enter Jesus now and the elder tells John there's a lion here. There's a lion of Judah who can open this scroll. And the line of Judah comes from Genesis 49. And if you were to go back to Genesis 49, you would see that uh, as uh, uh, this prophecy or this blessing is being spoken on on the children, he says to Judah specifically, he says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies and your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the Pray, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. And so way back from the line of Judah, it was told that there's going to be a lion that comes from this line. And he's going to have all authority. And there's going to be a picture of divine judgment and final authority. And the elders here in this vision say that here is one who can open the scroll of judgment because he's the lion in the genealogy of Judah. He's able to judge the world rightly. He is the justice of God. And if you keep going in Revelation, we see Jesus in this same light in Revelation 19. And, you, and I just have to read these texts because you've got to get this understanding of this is who Jesus is. In Revelation 19, John the vision is continuing and John says again, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. And he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, Dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter, and he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so this is the, the Lion of Judah, Right? Whose robes are dipped in the wine, the blood of the grapes, the wine press, right? He's got the scepter. And he is ruling. And he is exacting justice, perfect justice of God on his enemies. And we don't usually like to speak about Jesus in these terms. That's, that's what today is about. We don't, we don't, we don't usually like to talk about Jesus this way as Christians, right? We, we tend as Christians very often to really like Jesus the lamb, but we are not quite so sure what to do with Jesus the lion. But we can't, and we must not try to be saved by only half a Jesus. Half a Jesus can't save you. God intends for us to know him and to know who he is rightly. And he sent his son that we might know who he is. He said to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so when you're reading through the Gospels and, and you're seeing Jesus and you're remembering the Lamb of God and his mercy and forgiveness and, you, and, and, you, and you're just sort of following in love, in love with that aspect of Jesus, which we rightly should. We can't say that we fully know Jesus while we explain away or turn a blind eye to half of his glory. And the other half of Jesus the lamb is Jesus the lion. We can't depend on the mercy of the lamb unless we properly understand the victory that is won for us by the lion. You're thinking, what do you mean by that? This is what I mean. What does redemption mean if there is no justice? What are you saved from if there is no judgment? What exactly are you rescued from in your salvation by Jesus if there is no day coming when God is going to punish the wicked for their rebellion? How can we say that we've received spiritual life if there is not also spiritual death? What are we transferred out of into the light if it's not out of darkness? This is what I mean by worshiping. And knowing the whole Jesus. Because you cannot appreciate the redemption you have in Jesus unless you know the judgment that is stored up for you in unrighteousness. And you can never turn to Jesus, and you may never turn to Jesus, unless you understand that there is not only love and mercy and acceptance in Jesus, but on the other hand there is justice and there is final punishment for those that reject him. And so you won't ever think you need saving unless you know there's something to be saved from. And so in the book of Revelation here, at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it's just this magnificent corrective. If you somehow managed to get through 65 books of the Bible about Jesus, and you somehow came away with the idea that the sum total of Jesus is that he is a lowly lamb who just wants more friends like you, and your greatest sin is that you have deprived him of your friendship, then you have not understood what the Bible is teaching. That's not the gospel. When the veil is removed, when the curtain is pulled back, the truth is that we are rebellious people who are resisting the truth of God and we have sinned against a righteous and a holy God who cannot ignore justice and still be called good. If God ignores the sin of the world and the evil of this world, he would not be a good God. And so there is a day coming when we will face that God and his perfect justice will be poured out through his servant, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and the blood of his vengeance will stain his robes red. That day is coming for all of us. But at the same time, the lion who will judge is also a lamb-like lion. And so he has already won a completely different victory for us. He's already conquered the sin that would put us under the wrath of God. And he hasn't won that victory by his sword or by his claws or by his fangs, but he has won that victory by laying down his life as a sacrificial lamb. His grace and his mercy and his forgiveness is available to everyone who turns away from their rebellion and accepts the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And if they don't accept the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, then the goodness of God will be revealed in the wrath of the Lion of Judah. And as Christians, sorry, and this is significant because Jesus is the very image of God, and God is holy and just and righteous. And if we delight in his holiness and in his righteousness and in his purity, and and we glorify God because of his goodness then we have to rejoice in justice against the sin and the wickedness and the rebellion against that righteousness. But we should not be surprised or find Jesus any less admirable because he is the lion as well as the lamb, because Jesus has never been anything but both lion and lamb, even in the Gospels. And people forget this, and we forget this when we come to Jesus sometimes. As Christians, we love and admire the whole Jesus, and we love and admire him more perfectly because he is both lion and lamb. And this is what I mean. We we may admire Jesus for his lamb-like humility, but isn't the humility of Jesus all the more admirable because of where he humbled himself from? Isn't it when we realize that the very God of the universe left his perfect, glorious self-sufficiency in heaven to enter into our weakness that we really admire his humility. We admire the lamb-like humility of Jesus because we understand the lion-like sovereignty that he gave up to become that lamb. And we admire him for his majesty, but all the more because it's a majesty that came among us. And we admire him because of how good he was, but we admire that goodness all the more because of the patience that he has to suffer evil and the justice that will come. And we admire him because he was obedient and he submitted to the word of will of God. But we admire that lamb-like obedience all the more because that submission came from the lion who, for whom the whole universe was made. and And, the, and he was the king of all creation. And so his obedience and his submission is all the more worthy of praise because of who he is as the lion, the king. And we love that Jesus could be simple enough to teach children and to enjoy them and to spend time with children, but we love that all the more because we know that he also carried with him the dignity and wisdom of God that just as easily confused the scribes and confounded the Pharisees, right? His, his simplicity with children is all the more awesome because of the glory that is being veiled for him to do that. And we admire Jesus for his sacrifice to absorb our punishment on himself, But he's all the more admirable because the justice that he absorbs is the infinite wrath of a holy God against an unholy world. And we admire him because he used his power to quiet the storm, but even more so because he refused to use that power to strike down the Samaritans. So we admire, as Christians, we have to understand that the admiration of the Lamb comes with the glory of knowing that he's also the Lion. Right? Jesus has always been both Lion and Lamb. We remember the Jesus who says, therefore, whoever becomes as humble as this child who's come to me will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, right? We we quote that a lot. If we just become like children before Jesus, we'll inherit the kingdom, and we quote that. But we often forget that in the exact same breath, Jesus says that if anyone should cause a child like this to sin, it would go better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea compared to what I'm going to do to them at the end. So he's inviting the children on one hand, and he's warning that there's a lion behind this lamb too. Or we frequently quote Jesus, who said that he did not come to judge. But we quote less often those verses that show us that his very presence will divide people for or against him. And we love the Jesus who came to save the whole world and lay down his life for the nations, but we're unsure what to do with the Jesus that will also separate the people of the world like one who is separating sheep from goats. Because he says that too in Matthew 25. We love the Jesus who shows compassion to the Roman soldier who brings his son and, and he heals his son, but we're not, so sure, not as sure what to do about the Jesus who is whipping the vendors out of the temple in defense of the holiness of his father and his father's house. So to fully worship Jesus, we have to recapture the, the, the deep, profound beauty and excellence of the whole Jesus, so that we know and admire him and glorify the Jesus who really is, not, not just the safe Jesus that we, maybe we've made for ourselves. And that's the purpose of Revelation, and that and, and that's sort of why it's it's pulling back the veil. Because you can't read through Revelation and not get the whole Jesus. You get the lamb, but you also get the lion. And you understand that, that your relationship with Jesus and your, and your worship of Jesus and your, your glory in Jesus has to be for both the lion and the lamb. I was at a pastor's conference a few years ago, just to sort of give you a picture maybe of, of what this, a small picture of what this can mean for us, or maybe what I'm driving at. And I think it was Thabiti Eniabwile, say that five times fast. (laughs) I think it was Thabiti who gave this illustration, I can't remember, of how we have to understand the the harmony of God's justice and love, the perfection of being the lion and the lamb. And it's a life illustration that I'm sure you can use from this day forward, so you can put this in your pocket to use with your friends, because I'm pretty sure you have a story that's exactly like this. And your story, if you were to tell the story, would go like this. I remember when I was a little boy or a little girl, when my mom or dad told me to never go to X or to touch Y. And so, of course, because, you know, we were kids, that's exactly what we needed to do. So we touched Y or we went to X, knowing full well that we were not supposed to touch Y or go to X. And while we were doing or going or touching in the ways that we were not supposed to, we really thought we were getting away with it. Right? You're with me so far? You've all got a story like this, right? And then suddenly, out of nowhere, there was dad or mom or grandpa or grandma. And we knew at that moment we were done for. And then your story usually ends with something like, and we didn't sit down for a week, right? Something happened. So I think you've all got that life illustration, right? Keep that in your pocket because you can use it. The amazing thing about that story, that illustration, is that at that time we are recounting a moment in our life when our parents literally terrorized us. Right? At that moment, when we are caught in that disobedience, like we just about lose our bladder a little bit right there, right? Like you are afraid that you have just been caught. Because you know what's coming. Right? And we are gonna get spanked, or we're gonna get grounded, or we're gonna have something taken away from us, or we're at least gonna be rebuked and embarrassed. But when we tell that story now, and I know you all have that story, When we tell that story, we tell it with a smile on our face. And we tell it without any hint of blame towards our parent. Because we know in that moment, they were absolutely correct in bringing justice that they brought. And that the justice that they brought was not only correct, but it was also warranted. And the justice that they brought to us was not only correct and warranted, but it was necessary. And above all of that, at that moment when when we're in that terror of being caught in the wrong by our parents, that justice was completely consistent with their love for us. That justice is not at all inconsistent with the love of a mother or father for their child, is it? And so Jesus is love, and Jesus is mercy and grace and forgiveness, but he is not only that, Jesus is justice too. And the justice of God, the justice of God that's going to be enacted through his servant Jesus, the Lion of Judah, is not inconsistent with his love. He is the Lamb of God and he is the Lion of Judah. And it is justice and it is love and it's not inconsistent. And so when we worship Jesus, when we think of Jesus, we have to worship the whole Jesus, not just half Jesus, not just lowly Jesus, meek and mild. Not just the sacrificial lamb, but also Jesus, the lion of Judah, who is going to, in perfect consistency with the love of God, exact justice as he rightly should or he would not be a good God. And so for us, as we sort of, sort of wrap up this series on Jesus, we want to make sure that we are not leaving Jesus behind without worshiping and knowing him for exactly who he is. He's the lamb of God but he's also the Lion of Judah. And we worship Jesus for all of who he is, not just the Jesus that we pick and choose and make up that fits comfortably with what we like. When you take Jesus, you take all of him, everything that he is. Way back when, when when God was talking to Moses, he didn't say to Moses, tell the people I am who you want me to be. He said, Tell my people, I am who I am. That's who we have to worship. Let's pray. Father God, this morning, it's chilling to have that curtain removed and pulled back. And it's a little bit scary for us to see your holiness and your purity and your righteousness, which is like a blinding jewel on a throne that we cannot comprehend. And Lord, whenever you've revealed yourself to your prophets or your people, they fall down and they worship because we can't stand in your presence. And Father, that's true of Jesus. It's so easy for us to just put Jesus in a little box and make him safe. But he's the king. He's good, but he's not safe. And we need that dangerous king. We need that victorious lion-like lamb who conquered death, who defeated Satan, but at the same time sacrificed himself to cover our sins. What an amazing contradiction that isn't. Lord, that's who we need to worship, the whole Jesus lamb and lion. Father, thank you for pulling back the veil that we could have a glimpse at you who we're really worshiping beyond our comprehension. In Christ's name, amen.